and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 23rd, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi, uh, Peter. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. date of all dates, April twenty third. You just uh, told right. us that these are important dates in Broadway history. Well, certainly <laughs> uh, that playwright named Shakespeare, who was born on this date, ostensibly Shakespeare. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yes, and um, for musical theater lovers, uh, what is considered the perfect musical? She loves me. Opened literally sixty years ago today. Yeah, it adds up. <laughs> Yeah, that is uh, that you know how Time do you does pull fly. those how do you pull those out of the air Peter? I just you know we were just prepping and I said April 23rd and you had it at your fingertips. I mean you got to write the Broadway dictionary. Does has anybody written the Broadway dictionary the the comprehensive knowledge of everything? You know, who needs chat GPT when you talk to Peter Felicia once a week? <laughs> Let's see how many mistakes I make today. Go on. <laughs> ah, well, yeah, ChatGPT makes lots and lots of mistakes. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. And you can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Michael, and you also lead a charmed existence because Raul Spars is coming over to cook for you. <laughs> did i get that wrong did i get that wrong no 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 but we're going to be spending uh some quality time at ripley greer studios um on tuesday may 9th uh from 4 to 5 15 5 30 uh raul is going to uh, participate in a uh open live interview and q a for the drama desk uh at, but we do have uh, tickets available, limited tickets for the general public at only $5 each. Um, and it's at Ripley Greer, uh, the 305 West 38th Street location on the second floor, room 210. And uh, all you need to do is email michael at broadwaystars.com. Uh, tell us how many in your party and um, then show up at the door around like three, I would say no later than 345. And it, I think it's going to be really exciting because Raul, you know, I mean, we love him anyway, but he's also going to be in the news uh, because Oliver will have opened at City Center that previous oh, yeah. weekend and, and which in which he is playing Fagan. So I'm sure between that and his other myriad accomplishments, We'll have a whole lot to talk about. Also keeping you busy is uh, Jerry Orbach's Broadway featuring William Michaels and J. Aubrey Jones and more at 54 Below. Yes. Coming up on July 24th. You guys uh, working out your script? Uh, well, I haven't quite started on that yet because there, there's not going to be much of it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to keep the talk down. Uh, but I think we've got a pretty good running order. And we'd all, we've also... Uh, Officially added another cast member, Nikita Burstein. Oh, great. Uh, from Romeo and Bernadette, and he was also in my Bernstein on Broadway show. So as it stands now, we have William Michaels, Nikita Burstein, uh, J. Aubrey Jones. Then we have special guests, Chilo Hara, 
Ah. from the original cast of Promises, Promises, and Leroy Reams from the original cast of 42nd Street, and both of Jerry Orbach's sons, mm. uh, Chris and Tony, are going to be with us. Uh, so I think it could be a very, very special evening. Mm. And, and as I said um, before, every time I tell someone the idea for this show that their eyes and their faces light up because mm-hmm. uh, uh, that was another person who was, seems to be universally beloved Jerry Orbach, Absolutely. not only Absolutely. for his talent, but just yeah. for his, you know, his nice guy being a, a real mensch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, uh, so I, I think uh, that it's, uh, it's something I'm very excited about and we'll tell you much more about it as we get closer. I, I did. I did not uh, prep you guys for this, and so if if you'd like to cut it, let me know. But uh-huh. I, I didn't know if you guys have any thoughts about the the announcement from Fifty Four Below converting from a for profit enterprise to a non profit enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about uh, business that I can really understand what's going on there. But um, considering the fact that most of us have had trouble paying money there, it's been not-for-profit for us for a long time, no matter how much we uh, enjoy the <laughs> show. Because good Lord, I remember one time at a, um, at a Theater World ceremony that I was emceeing, I, um, Anne Hampton Callaway was about to perform. This was a Monday, and I said, "You can." Um, she's going to appear there on Friday, so you have enough time to sell an arm and a leg to be able to afford it. So um, I hope this means that prices will somehow go down. I don't know if that one thing has anything to do with the other, but I'd love to see that happen because it really does cost so much money to go there. Well, and it just points up the fact of how uh, apparently extremely difficult it is to have a successful club of that yeah, type. That's we fair. have seen so many of them come and yeah, go. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. and even the high, you think the higher price ones, you think they've got to be able to cover yeah. their rent and yeah, their yeah. employees' expenses, and you know at those prices. But you know it's New York, and mm. I don't have to tell you what some of the rents are. I always yeah. I've always wondered that uh, that. Um, what the bottom line of that is at 54 below, because that's, of course, it's uh, in the basement of Studio mm-hmm. 54, mm-hmm. which, and that theater is owned by the roundabout, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, so, yeah, which brings up an interesting point. I mean, but people heard, um, oh, uh, 54 below is going nonprofit, and people are like, what? Uh, somebody wrote to me and said, a nonprofit nightclub? And and I said, well, I, it's unusual, but but you know, it, uh, it's not the same thing. But uh, Joe's Pub is part of the public theater. Um, and then somebody else, uh, actually, the New York Times article pointed out that Dizzy's Club is part of Jazz for Lingett Center, and those are both nonprofit organizations. But that's not, again, not exactly the same because they do so much more. It's that. I mean, Jazz for Lincoln Center is not just Dizzy's Club, and mm-hmm. certainly the public theater is not just Joe's Pub. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's not a complete lack of precedence for it. And the way I've always understood um, non-for-profit is all it really means is that you can't have shareholders and people can't make money off of the uh, profit. I mean, you can still pay salaries to everyone, obviously. Uh, but the money has that's earned has to go back into the business, isn't yeah, that basically uh, the, what it is? You know, the Schubert organization is is in essence a nonprofit, right? Uh, right. 
Right. Uh, and so, yeah, you don't have uh, shareholders, which is interesting because, uh, you know, many years ago I was I was asked to invest in 54 Below before it was opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I did not participate in, in that investment. But uh, I wonder how the people are feeling that did participate in that, although it's it's very, very tough to do restaurants and it's very very tough to do theaters to do theater you know entertainment presentation but doing a restaurant and a theater is like a, a bear of an offering <laughs> and uh, uh you you think about it, it uh you know uh, it, it is located directly below uh, studio 54 i have no idea if there is if they are the landlords in that but mm. uh but it's um it's interesting. I wonder how this is going to change. And, you know, we've heard whispers and rumors that 54 Below is, you know, it's uh, made a uh, – it's it's not been able to make a profitable business out of it. I don't know if that's true or not. It's a private company. It's not a public company. So I can't really validate that. But uh, Well, now you'll, be able to, now you'll be able to validate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because now you'll yeah, see yeah. the numbers. Yeah. yeah, we'll be able to see the filings for the nonprofit, absolutely. But nonprofit filings usually, you know, trail by a year to a couple of years. Hmm. So it'll be uh, a long while before we see it. So, but uh, uh, talking about uh, 54 Above and Studio 54, <laughs> uh, Todd Hames, who, uh, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, saved the Roundabout Theater Company, mm-hmm. uh, passed away this week. Uh, uh, Peter, do you have any thoughts about Todd? Yeah, what a surprise uh, to find out that um, that he had had cancer for 20 years, and he was fighting that for that length of time. Amazing, because he was a real hands-on guy when it came to... Um, greeting people at the door. When, when we showed up to get our tickets, we're used to seeing press agents there. But mm, more, yeah. far more often than not, he was there to greet you and say hello, and he seemed ruddy and healthy to me. I mean, it's amazing to me. We just don't know what people are going through in, in their lives, and it was just incredible to find that out. Um, always a, a nice guy to me, but more importantly, when you think of all these theater companies that started um, over the the past 50 years. I mean, how many have really done as well? Manhattan Theater Club and Roundabout, they have actually a Broadway presence where, I mean, I remember going to Roundabout when it was under the supermarket on 20, whatever street it was. Um, It's humble beginnings, you know, and of course we have to um, acknowledge Gene Feist was really the power back in those days, but Todd notched it up a level and made things happen. So uh, I, I really do feel terrible about the fact that I didn't know he was at, at, at all at risk. And and look what happened. So, and 66 is certainly not old. So somebody yeah. who's substantially older. So, yeah, it's, uh, and also we heard uh, this week that Barry Humphreys, who uh, uh, most. Broadway fans would know better as Dame Edna Everidge uh, also passed away. Uh, Michael, any thoughts about Barry? <laughs> well, those shows were beyond hilarious. Um, yeah. He uh, he really and he really lived that alter ego um, to the nth degree, didn't he? Uh, yeah. I uh, 
I wonder, somebody said, um, one of the, one of the articles on his death said, um, uh, talked about cashing the checks. I wonder who the checks were made out to. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I know I've told this story before, but in case nobody was listening, uh, or you just picked up the podcast in the last few weeks or months, but, uh, when you interview Dame Edna, you had to refer to Dame Edna as Dame Edna. There was no reference to Barry Humphreys, none. If so, um, the Dame would walk out and would have nothing to do with you. <laughs> so I asked uh, Dame Edna, Dame and Dad, have you ever thought of playing the great musical theater roles? Mame, Dolly. And at that point, she started speaking. And I'm, in a way, I'm sorry I went on because I would like to refer the answer to that question. But I said, Mame, Dolly. The Undertaker in Oliver. Well, Barry Humphreys played The Undertaker in Oliver in the original London production. And so there was a marvelous moment of, uh, that uh, she stopped and froze for a second before saying, The Undertaker in Oliver is not a great role. And who would know better than Dave Edna who played it? So, uh, <laughs> Mr. Sourberry. So she was pretty sour when she, um, she answered that question. You know, um, what has come out a lot, too, is the fact that um, uh, the dame could be difficult and the dame's uh, political feelings mm. do not mesh with a lot of ours. Um, and um, but um, let's let's say what uh, Stephen Schwartz said about Bob Fosse. Uh, Steve, by the way, was a Latin major in school, which is hard to believe, but that's actually true. De mortuis nil nisi bonum of the dead say nothing but good. So um, I'll leave it mm. at that. Um, when Dame first, uh, had her opening on Broadway, uh, she, she played it as that she really knew nothing of the Broadway community, mm -hmm. uh, and she was just coming in because she's a big star, uh, and it was, vi I laughed and laughed and laughed at, at her show, and uh, I saw it very early into the run, and I believe it was an, uh, it was some sort of spring show, and and Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS was doing the Easter bonnet uh, where they would collect uh, money right. uh, after the show and things like that, and Dame sort of uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if sort of or pretended that. <laughs> She didn't know what Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS was. Oh, right. And uh -huh. she called it, I remember. She called it Becefa. She's like, Becefa. <laughs> B-C-E-F-A. She's like, I don't know what this Becefa is, but they seem like good kids. <laughs> you know? And, I mean, it was just the cherry on the cake. It was well, just. Uh, <laughs> um, and I also remember uh, the year after she had been um, given a Tony. Um, she was uh, uh, on the, the broadcast and she said, you know, year, a year ago you gave me a Tony and I still have it. <laughs> yes, and I still have Yes, I remember that. Was now, that in the press room or was that? No, no, no. That was, that, that's what was on the broadcast. Now, it was on the broadcast? Yeah, it really was. You know, I have to say that even though <laughs> I lived only about a block away from what was Theater 4, it's not there anymore. And uh, she appeared there in 77, 78, something like that. In um, I think it was called Housewife Superstar. I didn't see it. I had no idea who this person was. Um, I came out of a theater in London one night uh, and because of time things, um, her show started later. People were coming out uh, onto the sidewalk to, to smoke when people did in those days. And 
I realized, hey, maybe I could second act whatever this is. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to see. But what was so amazing was the fact that everybody responded to the humor. And the humor is so matter of fact. You know, she'd say, what color is the rug in your bathroom? And the person would say brown. <laughs> and she'd make a face. You, know, you couldn't get out the right answer. Anything you said, you know, you'd be judged as having bad taste. But my point is, you know, White people were next to black people who were next to gay people who were next to straight people who were next to mm. young people, next to old people. And everybody was having the greatest time. I had never seen anything like it until that point. And so long before she came to Broadway, I just did discover her there and uh, was quite, quite, quite uh, impressed at how she could bring so many people together, having a wonderful time with so many worldviews that was so different. Well, the shrewd thing, uh, one of the shrewd things about Dame Edna's humor was that a so much of it was insult humor. Oh, indeed. And uh, but I think uh, she was completely cushioned by the creation of this outrageous character. Yeah. You yeah. know, and maybe if Barry Humphreys had gotten up on right. stage and said all of those things. Sure. They wouldn't have gone down as right. well. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very good. Point. Yeah. So. Um, oh, and back to Todd Hames. Uh, Peter, I'm a little surprised that you were so shocked only because i i i do remember um when todd first got cancer really and it wasn't uh i mean it wasn't front page news but it, mm -hmm. they didn't it keep was it so quiet long ago though either yeah it, it was you know yeah it was a long time ago yeah, i miss it right and and um and then subsequently i i noticed uh i, I didn't read the details but i i believe it was of the jaw or yeah somewhere mm -hmm. yeah and 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 then he had some kind of an operation that did slightly affect his speech which you could hear in uh those pre-show announcements that he would record um but also yeah it, that's the heartbreaking thing isn't it with cancer you can go for years in remission or or cancer free and then and then it comes back uh, that happened to me with a, a friend uh, a few years ago and i just was devastated um mm. you you like to think if they've gone through all that yeah you know and come through it you know can't god or whoever leave them alone mm. <laughs> uh, you know um so that that must be very very heartbreaking for everyone um who loves yeah him. so todd was uh uh diagnosed with sarcoma of the jaw in 2002 so yeah. mm -hmm. so many years back and it's sort of yeah, you know and it was also pretty much pre you know all things online all the time right. sure, so sure, we, we sure. didn't hear about it all sure. the time but yeah. I mean, we yeah. have so much information thrown at us every day that mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, crazy yeah so um Anyway, so Todd was 66 years old and mm. Dame Edna was 89. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, quite a difference. Quite a difference, mm. but two people who really left an indelible mark on Broadway. Sure, sure. Uh, and uh, I couldn't let today go by without mentioning mm. yeah. both of them. So first up in our reviews, Michael and Peter got over to see shocked so peter if laughter is good for the soul how did your soul do this week i think i'm gonna surprise a lot of people with my reaction to this one uh because going in i was hearing 
It's corny with a capital K. You're going to groan all these puns. Frankly, I think the show is very witty. Yes, witty. Um, so many perceptions that come out during the show. I, I dare say we're in Robert Horn's notebook for years. And he uh, opened up his notebooks <laughs> and said, um, okay, uh, let's use this one here. But I mean, such a perception is you don't know how many people you hate until you have to name a child. <laughs> now, that's an interesting line. <laughs> that's a very interesting line. And I'm telling you, so much of the humor is on that level. Yes, there are corny jokes. Absolutely. And what I love is that Jack O'Brien has directed the cast to wait, wait, let the people groan. Um, they also wait when they realize that you might need an extra second to figure out what the joke was. And yes, that's going to happen from time to time, too, which, again, reiterates the fact that it is a witty show. So uh, what I also love, too, is the fact that here we are in Cobb County, um, way down south, and these people are portrayed as naive but not stupid. Now, especially um, the character that Alex Newell plays, Lil, is hardly stupid. And we really are reminded, and we need to be reminded, the people who live in these rural areas are not automatically damn fools. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. If, if they had a different, if they were brought up in a different place, they would be well-educated. But the, you can see that some of them are really smart. What they really are is naive. And one of the problems here is the fact that these people really believe that they should stay where they are, that the outside world is a dangerous one. It's almost Brigadoon. And they really do not want anybody to leave. However, if nobody left, we wouldn't have much of a show in Maisie. And they acknowledge that this is um, a, a bit of a pun because after all, Maisie and Corn get it. Um, hmm. Maisie is going to leave. Why is Maisie going to leave? For a good reason. The Corn is dying, and they don't know why it is. And so she's going to try to fix that problem. Well, it is a stretch to think that you would go to any city and you would see a podiatrist. A podiatrist, yes. A podiatrist with a sign that says corn doctor. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's a stretch because that's not how a podiatrist um, bills himself. But anyway, she believes that he is going to be uh, somebody who can help the corn. Um, and again, naive, naive. All right. So he finds out that this place has a type of rock that is very valuable. So he wants to go to this place and get the money. All right. As my buddy Jeff Sweet always says, uh, shows like this, when somebody, an outsider comes into town, one of two things is going to happen. <laughs> Either he's going to be welcomed in the community and stay there, or they're going to throw them, throw them the hell out. So we'll see what happens there. The complication that is really very smart in this show is the fact has to do with technology. I'm not going to say any more. But technology throws a wrench into his plans. And yet we do wonder if he is going to inadvertently solve the problem for these people and make, make life better for them. Now, I'm going to say something that may be absolutely incorrect in terms <laughs> of what the intention of this show was. Robert Hahn, who I've met fleetingly, may say, Peter, God love you, but uh, yeah, no, no, that's not what I meant at all. However, I do see this as a 
comparable um, from the vantage point of we're dealing with conservatives and conservatives who are afraid. You know, I mean, we we learned a long time ago that well, we liberals leave much more interesting lives than conservatives do because <laughs> – we don't say why. We say why not. We do a million things that they're afraid to do. And here we are in a community where people are afraid. They don't want to know about the outside world. But here's a woman who is going to be liberal in the sense that she's going to leave and she's going to get out there. And if, if she didn't do that, well, indeed, you know, what would have happened? The, the corn would have died and uh, the town would have died. So you need liberals to make things happen again. Yeah, I can't wait to see Robert Hornet. Uh, I'm sure we're going to see him at these ceremonies coming up in May and June. Um, I really believe that. Um, so I'm going to certainly ask him and I won't be surprised if um, he laughs and snaps, slaps his knee, you know, saying, boy, I, you know, I had no idea that that's what um, you would get from that. But uh, but I do think there's something there. The lyrics, well, you know, it's country music. So as a result, um, rhymes are few and far between. However, they are intelligent lyrics. Um, our hero, Maisie. I'm looking for a window, not a wall, she says early on, you know, about the fact that she's going to go out there and make something happen. This is a big problem with her fiancé, Bo, um, as he's he he wants to solve the problem in a different way. This county is counting on me. Now, again, you know, nice nice ideas here and nice um, wordplay. Again, no rhymes, but you can't have everything. So um, Tampa, she goes to Tampa, and Tampa gets a city song. Um, I don't think it'll ever rival New York. New York is a city song because <laughs> some of the lyrics include where people are so old, you know. Um, so I, I don't think that Tampa is going to really welcome the song terribly much. But um, but um, beautifully directed by um, Jack O'Brien, who keeps everybody close to the front of the stage, which is always good. And of course, the Needlelanders. Um, not a particularly musical house. Yeah, I know Rent played there, but I mean, it's it really. It was a playhouse for so, for so many years. Um, it, it, it's musicals have proliferated on Broadway. They have to go somewhere. But I mean, this is where Virginia Woolf originally um, opened. So um, I was surprised to hear a reference to a baseball hall of famer of yours. So it was nice to see that he was uh, remembered. But this wouldn't be nearly as successful if you didn't have somebody who was really, really terrific in the role of Maisie. And while the name Caroline Inner Bickler may not sound like something you would find over a title. Um, she does the job very well. It seems like only a few years ago she was playing Annie. She's she's a redhead and she has that type of spunk <laughs> and spirit. Really, I bet I, I won't be surprised if Annie, I didn't read her bio, but I have a feeling in community theater somewhere along the way she played Annie. Um, too late now, no, but nevertheless, um, so she's really quite wonderful. And um, also what's very sweet is um, a character named Peanut, played by Kevin Cahoon. And um, because he wants things to work out between Bo and um, and Maisie. And, you know, they're going to have their ups and downs because he really does feel that uh, she's doing the wrong thing um, in, in going out there. And he's, he says, how can I um, be with someone who doesn't believe in me? And her response is, that works both ways. And it's true. You know, I mean, she, she, she isn't just... Um, uh, a dish rag who um, <laughs> just uh, whither thou goest. I mean, she she uh, she has her opinions and she certainly gives them and she's certainly right to give them. So um, I, I I think it's um, I you know there's a part of me that doesn't want to see it get best musical because I mean after all 
Um, it, uh, I, I like them to go to more lofty shows, but there's so much loftiness in here and much more than I expected that I'm really, really very surprised and very impressed. And boy, I want to hear if I'm right on this liberal conservative thing. <laughs> All right, Michael, what did you think? I definitely got that, Peter, and I don't. Did you really? Ah, yeah. Okay. It seemed like kind of the main point of it. Mm. I I don't see how anyone could think otherwise. Oh, good. Uh, Good. I hope you're right, too. But I guess it's a tribute to um, a further tribute to Robert Horn that it's subtle enough that it doesn't like slap you in the face. No, it doesn't. Right. (laughs) Um, I loved the show. I I thoroughly recommend it. I laughed throughout. in addition to that, I liked the score far better than I ever thought I would, um, including not only the comedy songs, but the ballads. There are some lovely, you know, country style ballads in it that I think you could really excerpt and have hits with. Um, so I advise uh, performers to look at that. Um, really wonderful to have Jack O'Brien back in the driver's seat. He was one of my favorite directors back in the day and has been working less frequently in recent years, just, uh, you know, because of age, I suppose, but um, always admired his work. And I think this was right up his alley. Uh, um, The cast uniformly superb and, they really found exactly the right people for these beginning with this, these two storytellers. Um, th- those are the names of the roles, Ashley D Kelly, uh, who I, I was not that familiar with, but Gray Henson, whom we know from mean girls and was definitely a, a highlight of that show. Uh, uh, the minute I, he came out, um, the two of them came out and started telling us the story uh gray henson has this amazing comic ability to say a line and then react to it himself very subtly like uh almost like um not necessarily rolling his eyes but something like that or making a little flinch in his body to show you yeah that was a really bad joke i know (laughs) uh and he he does that just brilliantly brilliantly well Andrew Durand, fantastic. And uh, the aforementioned Caroline Inner Bickler. Kevin Cahoon uh, is someone else who anytime I see him on stage, he's 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 just a highlight. And um, John Bellman, who um, I guess in several roles now, he uh, he, well, he uh, he manages to be very sexy and very funny at the same time which is not an easy combo. <laughs> um, uh, I was struck by some parallels in this show uh, to, tr- I guess, tropes from other famous shows. I, I suppose the Music Man parallel is quite mm-hmm. obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but also uh, in terms of what you mentioned about the, uh, the rocks and the minerals, uh, I thought of anyone can whistle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so there are, and there are, I think maybe like a dozen others in there, like little references to other famous Broadway musicals and, and other pop culture things. Uh, but I think that's fine for, for this kind of a, a show. I, I enjoyed it far more than some other things that have more, um, more serious intentions in mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who really does prize great comedy, uh, I think this is a show for you. I, I mean, unless of course, you know, going in that you don't, 
respond to that particular type of comedy. But as Peter said, it's it's not all groaners. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a lot of wit in there, too. And so you never know what's coming next. You never know if you're going to be going, oh, <laughs> or if you're going to really or if you're going to really laugh at something that's very smart and very witty. Uh, so it's kind of keeping the audience on their toes in that respect. Uh, another great show. Uh, anyway, uh, I I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. And it's at the Nederlander. Maybe they'll maybe they'll have a new hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, a musical full of dad jokes that looks like it's written for me. <laughs> <laughs> for me absolutely so that is uh shucked over at the Nederlander, as peter and michael mentioned uh it's an open-ended run and we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh peter you headed over to the hayes theater to see the thanksgiving play so tell us about this well uh this play has been around for a while uh, i first started off broadway and in fact even in 2020 just days before the pandemic ended uh started um I saw it at uh, St. Louis Rep, so it's a play I, I know well. And, um, well, I have to say that I didn't like the direction. I thought it was over the top because this is a story that um, about school teachers who are trying to put on a play. Uh, Logan is one, and um, she got into trouble because she did a high school production of The Iceman Cometh. That strikes me as too easy and lazy a joke, by the way. Um, I'm not sure that, um, in fact, I'm pretty sure that um, high schools don't do The Iceman Cometh. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff about infidelity, and, uh, and they're all drinking and all that kind of stuff. So I think that, I think she could have picked uh, the uh, playwright Larissa Fastos could have picked a um, a different uh, play. Anyway, um, and there's another teacher too who um, can't believe he has this opportunity to write this play, to be involved with this play. This is going to be done around Thanksgiving time, obviously, and it's going to deal with um, Native Americans and uh, Native Americans' uh, difficulties with uh, the people who came over and um, disrupted their way of life. And, um, and and the point of the play is that everybody's trying to be as fair as possible to the um, Native Americans, and nobody wants to offend anybody because after this Iceman Cometh th- experience, Logan is very much uh, worried. Katie Finneran, who um, certainly received raves and a Tony for being in Promises, Promises, playing um, Marge McDougal, um, who has very little stage time, but um, Marion Mercer, who played her originally, played her very subtly, so I hated the way Katie Finneran was directed to play her, I guess. Um, and uh, I didn't even think she was so hot and noises off either, but here she, I think she's much, much better. Even though I say the direction's over the top, um, she isn't as over the top as she was uh, in those other shows. So as a result, um, I was very pleasantly surprised that I, I didn't go into my automatic hate mode with uh, Katie Finneran. So um, so that's who's um, really making this show happen. But as I say, there's also um, uh, an elementary social studies teacher uh, named Caden, C-A-D-E-N, played by Chris Sullivan. Yes, indeed. And um, yeah, but, but, but I, I really hate plays where teachers are made to look foolish because I just 
the greatest respect for teachers who have such a tough job and don't get any money for it, comparatively speaking. And they have to deal with kids who can be cantankerous and all that goes with that. So um, so I'm not crazy about plays where teachers are made to look foolish. I, I would like to see teachers venerated, frankly. All right, who else do they have here? Well, they have an actress who's um, had a bit of a career in Hollywood. Now, of course, if she's doing this show um, in a grammar school, she ain't that successful. But of course, because she's the person who has the most experience in the room, well, indeed, she is going to um, come in with a great deal of uh, sense of entitlement and power. And we find out that she doesn't have the same lofty goals as, um, as Logan and Caden do. Um, it's a job to her. She never gives Native Americans thought. A fourth member of the cast uh, is named Jackson, uh, nicely played by Scott Foley, by the way. Um, he's a professional actor, of course, as um, Logan points out to him. Well, uh, yes, I mean, you do get paid for your work, but you do um, act on a street corner and you do uh, get <laughs> tips from people. So I, if that makes you a professional, all right. So they're going to come to blows as well. But um, but it's all about um, political correctness. That's where the play really um, is interested in going. And it certainly goes there very, very well. Um, but I think we would have gotten the humor if if the director had trusted the material more and didn't figure, oh, we've got to make it farcical. Um, it doesn't have to be a farce. It can be um, quite a high comedy if um, if left the devices that I had seen in St. Louis um, three years ago. All right. So that's the Thanksgiving play at the Hayes. It's uh, playing through June 4th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. I wanted to mention that uh, Jan Simpson interviewed uh, Larissa Fast Horse in 2018 for the Stagecraft podcast, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, they talked about the Thanksgiving play as well. So Peter and Michael also saw mm -hmm. Peter Pan Goes Wrong at the Barrymore. So uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on this? Well, the idea of this was so hilarious that I was down for it the minute I heard that they were doing it. Um, uh, my uh, experience in the past, uh, just to recap, was that I saw the play that goes wrong on Broadway, and I, I, I liked it a lot. Then I saw it off Broadway at uh, New World Stages, and I'm not sure exactly what changed, but I thought it was one of the greatest and funniest shows I've ever seen in my life. Uh, somehow, maybe the intimacy uh, helped. Uh, there, there were some new people in the cast, and perhaps that you know that can make a a big difference in terms of chemistry and timing. Uh, I, I I have never been able to figure out why, but that was my experience with uh, the play that goes wrong. Peter Pan goes wrong. Anyone who knows anything about Peter <laughs> Pan can immediately start writing their own version of this, <laughs> uh, you know, and imagining what, what's what's going to happen. Uh, so I uh, my experience of this is that I found it more uh, more clever than funny and and with a tremendous amount of admiration as always, for the actors and the directors in the way that this almost nonstop physical comedy is pulled off. Everything possible that could go wrong could go wrong with the flying mechanisms, the sets, the, <laughs> the lights. At, at one point, there was one really 
scary moment for me mm-hmm. where um, it seemed like a, a, an actual mm-hmm. um, very, very heavy lighting. Uh, I think it would be called a friend, <laughs> a Fresnel, I yeah. think is what it was, um, fell from the sea, from the flies to the floor. Uh, it like about six inches in front of one of the actors and made a tremendous thud. Um, so I don't know if maybe it w- that thing was actually made of foam and they just they just timed the sound effects so brilliantly, um, or if the, I can't really believe they took that chance. Um, uh, um, maybe I'll see if I can get that answer from someone. But anyway, that's what this show is filled with, um, and it's obvious that everyone in it is a great comedian. But I, it just seemed to to get a little relentless at times and that the situations were uh they would they would make you open your mouth in shock but not in laughter necessarily um so that was that was my thought um that said the funniest performance in it on the night i attended came from neil patrick harris who has been jobbed in uh as uh, again sort of a narrator uh, figure and uh, it's it, it would you could see how it would be relatively easy to job someone in for that because uh, he is allowed to read literally read um, from the script or the prompt book or whatever it is uh, as he narrates for the audience um, but uh, that is not all there is to it uh, at least as Neil Patrick Harris plays it there are several really major pratfalls um during during the course of it the narrator is not spared even though he's not in the part of the actual show um although he does do small roles in the show as well uh so i uh was kind of um kind of amazed at that uh that this major star would be doing these these huge pratfalls which obviously require lots of rehearsal and split second timing will be interesting to see um neil is only in it for a limited time will be interesting to see if they try to replace him with another name or just with uh you know one of the ensemble company members here all right so uh peter what's your thoughts on peter pan goes wrong well, in a way, I should be offended uh, because here I am, a big fan of community theater, and this is essentially mocking community theater. <laughs> um, but I think it it gets a pass because of the goes wrong in the title, uh, you know, the play that goes wrong, um, Peter Pan goes wrong, Funny Girl goes wrong. No, that was last year. Anyway, so, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of stuff involving flying that's going to go wrong. And I remember turning on the TV in a hotel room once and running into America's Funniest Home Videos. There was an entire sequence on amateur theater, um, high school theater, where indeed Peter Pan went crashing into the set. Mary Martin crashed into the set once and really had a, a, mm. a real problem with her arm. And she was doing Sound of Music at the time. And um, it was really very hard for that to do a special costume where she was in a cast. So it's not just the flying. They, again, the same thing with the play that goes wrong. Just when you think they can't think of anything new to do, they come up with something new and you really have to admire the fact that they are just wonderfully in tune with what uh, they're doing here. So um, I really have to give credit. I I can fully understand why it took three people to write this Henry Lewis, Jonathan Sayer and Henry Shields. It makes perfect sense to me that this is one of those collaborative efforts where somebody says, and then you know what could happen, you know, and, and indeed it does. 
Um, I will say I was a little disappointed that something that happened in a production of Peter Pan, I believe in Salem, Mass, that I did not see, but I was only told about uh, when Wendy had Nana, the dog on a leash, and um, come on, Nana, and pulled the leash, and the head of the dog came off. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and my friend Paul Roberts told me the people, the kids of the audience screamed in horror I mean, <laughs> for whatever reason. So I, I fully expected to see that. So, so maybe they didn't get each and everything, but what they get is really good. And by the way, um, may we also do a little bit, well, more than a little bit, because um, this really um, is, is an amazing thing, because as you know, Peter Pan just doesn't take place in um, a, a, a room in England, uh, in London. No, uh, you're going to have to get over to Neverland and all that goes with that. So Simon Scullion really did a masterful job in creating a set that takes us here, there and everywhere. And and uh, it's it's a very clever set. Mm. And so as a result, um, I will say that this turns out to be a tribute to community theater, that uh, <laughs> there are good set designers out there that do very, very well. And um, so Simon Scullion has really honored them tremendously by coming up with a very, very clever set. Yeah, um, I liked it a lot. Um, I've seen the play that goes wrong three times, and um, I wouldn't mind going again. Yeah, last time I was in London, I even thought about going again, where I first saw it, in fact. So um, I hope that this is not my one and only trip to uh, Peter Pan Goes Wrong. I should mention the performance I attended was not destroyed, but severely marred by uh, an extra number of assholes in the audience uh, because um, they encourage audience response to a certain extent in terms of booing Captain Hook Mm -hmm. and things of that. So, well, some um, lovely individuals took this as an invitation to start screaming things out whenever they felt like it. Uh Uh, including someone who thought, oh, I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, reveal uh, where uh, Tinkerbell is and uh, and that where Captain Hook is hiding. Uh, Oh, no. And then someone said uh, even before (laughs) even before um, Tink, uh, you know, became ill, started to reveal the, uh, you know, the the well, well, if we. If we clap, uh-huh. uh, we'll, we'll, we can bring her back to life. I mean, like pages before it happened. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. And I was like, shut up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't do that. Do your own show. I want to I want to give a shout out to to uh, Nancy Zamet. Um, who uh, played Tinkerbell in other roles too, but she has amazing uh, costume changes that uh, yes. as, as quick as the one that's that the dreams didn't dream girls when they went from one city to the next. Um, and if you go way back, Marilyn Cooper had in, on the town. So um, tremendous. And she's very, very funny too. But I mean, those costume changes, uh, a credit to the dressers or whoever's behind her there that, that makes this happen. So uh, I'm, we're talking about split seconds here. So, um, so I like that quite a bit as well. Yes. Michael, we've, uh, we've talked a number of times about audience behavior. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Playbill article that got killed a few months back. And right. this week, you know, uh, Theater Mania, just up to date in our top of things, uh, did an article about audience behavior. Like, oh, I didn't, uh, see, I didn't see that one. Yeah. yeah so, uh, well, I wonder and, if their CEO will, will um, pull it like Phil Bursch did that other yeah, one. Yeah. Probably not, you know. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, this uh, seems to be an issue uh, that is, is it will be with us for for a bit of time. So, and, and I, yeah, I don't know, uh, totally unscientific and everything. I, I, is it maybe related to alcohol consumption at the theater and? Combination of that, combination of in the internet age, everyone feels they can weigh in whenever they want to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So that is uh, Peter Pan Goes Wrong at the Barrymore. It's scheduled through uh, July 9th, uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Finally, this morning, to our last review of the day is uh, Michael got to the classic uh, dark comedy, Arsenic and Old Lace, Mm. uh, being presented by the Ghostlight Players on Staten Island. So, Michael, tell us about this. Well, I don't have that much to say, but I did want to comment because, as I've mentioned uh, recently, I have never seen this play in any way, shape, or form, including the movie. Mm until uh i saw this production so i'm really glad uh you know that these friends of mine did this production on staten island and allowed me to check off that box uh i can completely see why it's not revived uh very often nowadays it i think this is almost hopelessly dated to me uh it's this story about these two little old ladies the brewster sisters living in brooklyn in uh 1941 and at first they seem like charming sweet old ladies and it turns out they're killing people uh and for no good reason really (laughs) um maybe they have to make meat pies (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's do a mashup (laughs) um so uh and it's kind of a one joke thing in that sense but then they the playwright um Joseph Kesselring does other things to try to keep uh our interest throughout uh I I was vaguely amused by the fact that one of the major characters is a theater critic mm-hmm. um so there <laughs> so there are um some fun jokes about that uh at at his expense um and uh but then also uh I think it should have been obvious maybe from the beginning that this play was going to have a relatively short shelf life because one of the characters in it is based on Boris Karloff and indeed was originally played by Boris Karloff on on Broadway. And uh, he is supposed to be this creepy guy who uh, talks like Karloff, you know, that famous Karloff voice that we hear uh, that this voice that talks like this very good yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so uh, but then as if that wasn't enough uh, then there's another character named Teddy who's supposed to be Teddy Roosevelt uh, <laughs> well not quite you're not supposed to be Teddy Roosevelt he thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt yeah, right <laughs> there's a difference yeah. right but right yes thanks for clarifying but my point being that um I actually had a conversation with a friend my age the other day, and I said, well, I I suppose everyone, I suppose everyone maybe still knows who Boris Karloff is through Frankenstein, if only through Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And also he, of all things, he narrated how the Grinch stole Christmas for Mm -hmm. uh, TV. Uh, I said, but Teddy Roosevelt, I wonder, you know, young people, I wonder how much, if at all, if they know anything about 
Teddy Roosevelt. And if they get the joke at all, when he keeps running around the stage uh, of this play yelling charge, you know, which was a famous Mm-hmm. Rooseveltism, and my friend said he said I he said I'll go you one better he said I don't think uh, that most young people even know who B- Boris Karloff is mm-hmm. he said because they don't watch old black and white movies mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. um, and I said well you know I guess you're right so I I think yeah to put not one but two jokey characters like that in in this play uh, I think that that was a mistake and I just also feel it's kind of overwritten too long for the uh for the joke it's three acts um they have two intermissions they did have two intermissions they had Mm -hmm. a 15 minute intermission and and then this 10 minute one Uh uh and it was I, you know, I didn't actually. I think it came out at like two forty-five or somewhere between two forty-five and three hours. Um, so uh, I think that they all did a wonderful job with it, especially considering the the challenges here. Um, my friend Barbara Scalisi uh, was Abby Brewster. And Ellen Mitchell was Martha Brewster. And the neat thing there is that forty years ago, um, actually, I cast Barbara in her first show uh, on on Staten Island. Uh, we did well, a music. Well, we did a musical review called "It's Still Lovely," uh-huh. and uh, and it so happened that she wound up playing with Ellen Mitchell in in two uh, scenes. In that one was uh, on the town. Uh, El, um, Barbara played uh, Brunhilde Estrazy. And uh, Ellen played her roommate, Lucy Schmieler, the one that, that mm-hmm. uh, Hildy tries to get rid of so she can do it with uh, the mm-hmm. sailor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, they played uh, in, in an excerpt from Most Happy Fella, uh, Barbara played Cleo mm-hmm. and Ellen played Marie, Tony's sister. And so uh-huh. that was the first time they worked together because, as I said, it was Barbara's first show. And now here again, you know, mm-hmm. how decades later they're they're playing mm-hmm. the Brewster sisters. And um, they're still at it. And they're still at it. So that mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, I mean, I would have gone if only for that reason. And it was very, very well directed um, by my friend Craig Kwasnicki, who also directed The Guys and Dolls that you saw, Peter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was that. I I I. Do wonder if we will ever see any kind of future production of Arsenic and Old Lace, whether revised or not. Well, uh, I, I want to go to bat for the play, which I think is really terrific, though I first discovered it on TV in a wonderful production with Tony Randall played uh mortimer the, the uh, mm. mortimer by the way of course is a a, a name that involves death doesn't it um <laughs> uh, 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 the drama critic and uh boris karloff actually reprised his role right oddly enough i don't know i don't remember the story why but he didn't do it in the movie raymond massey did uh, mildred natwick and dorothy stickney were the sisters and and uh, that was great fun. And Tom Bosley, uh, later Mr. C on Happy Days, um, and it also appeared in Beauty and the Beast, was uh, Teddy Teddy Brewster, not Teddy Roosevelt, um, though he thinks he is. I, I, I adore this play, and I, I never tire of seeing it. Um, I saw a tiny production in Connecticut a few years ago just because it was playing, and I was in the neighborhood, and yep, I'm going. Um, it is one of the few plays 
in the history of Broadway in London that ran over a thousand performances in both cities. Mm. Um, very few uh, have been able to do that. Amadeus did it, Sleuth did it, maybe a couple of others, but not many. And uh, granted, this was a long time ago. I'll grant you that. What I would love to see is what Joseph, Joseph Kesselring originally wrote, because it has been long said and rumored and even close to substantiated <laughs> that Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss, who wound up producing the play, really had a lot to do with the rewrite. And, mm. and um, it wouldn't have been successful without them. Joseph Kesselring never had remotely anything that was a hit. Um, he did make so much money from the show that he does have a foundation. And they do give out um, money every year, I think, to playwrights. I imagine it's to playwrights. And, of course, elderberry wine is served at the function. Um, <laughs> elderberry wine is what uh, what these ladies uh, put poison in. It's euthanasia to them. They feel it, it's not unlike Mrs. Mears and Thoroughly Modern Millie. Um, uh, not that they're venal as she is, but, you know, how sad to have no one in the world or whatever she says. That's what it is. If they find out that these people have no relatives, no friends, they're lonely, they really feel that death is a, a perfectly fine uh, alternative, and they're going to help in that way. So, um so, uh, yes, I, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for it. But your point is well taken, Michael. I never, it never even occurred to me that uh, people today would have problems with Boris Karloff and mm. um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. But yeah, yeah, mm. you, you're right. I'm sorry to say um, that uh, I have to agree because I love the play so much. I don't really want to agree, but um, rationally, I have to. So I see your point. Well, and that's what happens when you put characters like yeah, that in the play. I, I, yeah, um, yeah. I recently uh, read a, um, a a bit of a play that a friend wrote, and it was hilarious. But I felt like every other line was a pop culture reference. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Also, that applied to that um, uh, that gay play that I reviewed off off Broadway recently. Uh, so you you know you have your your choice. You get the easy, quick laugh. Um, but it might not last. <laughs> uh, it might it might not be something yeah. that's that people yeah. are going to laugh at in five, you know, ten, mm. you know, twenty years. Mm. Mm. So that is Arsenic and Old Lace, um, playing uh, Ghost Like Players production that's on Staten Island uh, this afternoon, Sunday, the April twenty third yeah. is the last uh, performance of it. But uh, check out the future things that they're going to do. I'll have a link to Ghostlight Players in the show notes. They're doing uh, uh, um, another company out there is about to do Bat Boy. Uh-huh. And you know, I Bat was going to bring is up not seen very often. So love, I'm going to be I love there. Bat Boy, and I was yeah. thinking about the parallels between Shucked and Bat Boy. You know, raising yeah, there are some, yeah. raising yeah. cows on the side of a mountain, and the mm-hmm. town was failing, and they needed a. They needed a deus ex machina to fix that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Shucked has got uh, their mm-hmm. corn. And then I also thought with Shucked, the, uh, as soon as I heard Maisie, I think of Susical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, indeed. <laughs> and Janine so Lamana was just in uh, Woman of the Year. Right, um, right. At, at J2 um, in, on Theater Row, doing a very, oh, the, very fine job. Very fine J2 job. J2 is firing on all cylinders. They're they really knocking are. it out of the park. Yeah, you doing bet. Really, you bet. really busy. We have, if uh, I may give a shameless plug here, um, uh, next Saturday, the 29th, um, after the matinee performance of Sugar, 
I'm doing what I did um, a couple of weeks ago for Woman of the Year. Uh, Rob Schneider, uh, the artistic director, has asked me to talk about the seasons in which these shows were uh, done. So we talked about 1981, 82 uh, for, I'm sorry, 80, 81 for um, Woman of the Year, which was the year of 42nd Street and onward Victoria to go to two extremes. And um, so I'll be talking about the 1971-72 season after next Saturday's matinee of uh, Sugar, when indeed that was the season Sugar was produced. So uh, I was going to uh, bring up that Sierra Bogus and Santino. Yeah, Pana, huh? You know, doing mm-hmm. uh, Goodbye Girl. Off well, that's Broadway. what happens when you get uh, David Zippel to direct your show. Direct your show, yeah, really. <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah. Calling I mean, in all it, his markers, yeah. And Santino yeah, sure. is not only doing that, uh, yeah. he's also in Iolanthe right. uh, at uh, Carnegie Hall with the Master Voices. And um, what? I'm sorry, what's the other thing? Uh, there is another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. There is. You're right. Um, I can't Let's say it comes see. to mind. Demo. Oh, nine. Nine. Yeah. Nine. yeah. <laughs> There's he'll that little thing. For, he'll be good for that, too. The transport yeah. group, right? Yeah, he'll be good yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The lead so, at nine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean there's only the one lead, guy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we know he's the lead. <laughs> he's not playing the nine year old kid. <laughs> David Zippel, Santino Fontana, Sierra Bogus. Uh, you know, uh, does it seem like oh. they might have higher aspirations than Off-Broadway? Uh, I wish that's set from 1994. It's Summer Fun in Montclair, New Jersey, designed by the then-unknown Beowulf Borat could be used, because I'm telling you, what a set that was. You knew you were watching Genius right at that moment in time. So it, it, it was a theater not... <laughs> not much bigger or smaller than where they are now. So, uh, so it would really be something to, um, to see that set again. Of course, it's long gone. I, I'm, I'm not being literal here, but, but still, um, I'm hoping for the best with, uh, whatever set they have, which I guarantee you will be better than what was the Broadway set was, which was horrendous. Yeah. So I, I don't know if we explicitly said it, but this, this goodbye girl is also a J2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can find out more information about what they are doing at J2 and Robert Schneider. Uh, uh, Snyder, it just really, really wonderful, run, wonderful work. Well, well, also, it's very nice to have a chance to see Sugar while Some Like It Hot is still running, <laughs> uh, if indeed Some Like It Hot is still running next right. Saturday. But, but uh, really, it will be something to see. Um, people will be able to compare or contrast. Um, they may wind up uh, thinking that one show is far superior to the other, but it's nice to have the chance to uh, make that comparison. I'm amazed that they gave them the rights. And even, didn't pull them. <laughs> even, right, exactly. Even for, I, I realize it's a very small company. I know. And it's only, what, two couple of weeks, two or three weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, low, low, low budget, uh, sure. but still in Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Four blocks from the other one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. surprised. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of minutes ago, I, I brought up the theater mania and playbill and audience etiquette, uh, uh, you know, trailing on Michael's comments about the uh, audience behavior in, in Shucked. Uh, of course, I had a, 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 another point to make, but I forgot about it. And, and Rob Johnson in our chat room reminded me it was because Playbill has uh, published a code of conduct. Have you guys seen it in your yeah, Playbills yeah, yeah. this in week? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
Very interesting to uh, spend uh, a page that could be used for revenue to a code of conduct. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Phil Bursch, the uh, president, chairman of Playbill, has uh, published one, I I suppose, in response to the article that he had pulled. Mm -hmm. So so check that out in your play. But I, 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 I feel as though that... Anybody listening to our broadcasts, you know, might not need to read this thing. It's the present people company that... accepted, <laughs> <laughs> except for the uh, the, the people that need to read this are probably not reading. Period. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I have to clarify, it it wasn't shocked where I had the problem. It right. was Peter Pan goes. Yeah, it was Peter right. Pan. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the shocked yeah. audience was yeah behaved very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good to hear. They all checked in with us. Yes. All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to our musical moment and our trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, you can automatically download it to Apple Podcasts. Of course, you don't have to get us an Apple Podcast. There's many ways to get us. You can support Broadway Radio's offerings by going to Patreon.com slash Broadway Radio and become a patreon supporter of broadway radio and get our podcasts earlier than anybody else plus extra podcasts matt is always pumping out stuff as mm-hmm. well as jan and lauren clash schneider and mm-hmm. everybody else is doing a bang up job supporting us in patreon uh you can listen to us in spotify iHeartRadio, radio tune in stitcher google play anywhere that you can listen to final podcasts you'll find broadway videos offerings contact information for peter for michael and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today so peter do you have an answer to last week's trivia it's a famous musical of yore. It and its two Broadway revivals received cast albums as well as a soundtrack when the film was finally made In the original production, an actor who won a Tony sang a song in which he mentioned two fictional characters, both of whom are represented on Broadway right now. In the same song, this actor also mentioned a famous real person saying three syllables of the famous four persons, uh, famous person's four syllable last name. In a few months, that famous person will be portrayed off Broadway by a Tony winning star. What's the musical? What's the song? Who are the three people mentioned? Who are the two actors who won Tonys? Frankly, I thought this one was, uh, I, I was embarrassed uh, that I even gave this <laughs> one because it occurred to me while I was watching the movie of Finian's Rainbow, <laughs> because there I was watching it. And um, in the original production, Tony winner David Wayne sang something sort of grandish in which he mentioned Romeo and Guinevere. Well, the former can now be seen in the musical and Juliet and the latter, of course, in Camelot. Um, uh, Larissa C.Y. Harburg used to play around with words. So Eisenhower became Eisenhausish. So that's why three syllables of the four syllable uh, name we use. Citing the president whom Tony winner, John Rubenstein, will be playing in this piece of ground, a solo show this summer. <laughs> so I thought this was impossible. Well, Tony Janicki was the first to get it, followed by Greg Christensen, uh, followed by Paul Witte, Arthur Robinson, Sean Logan, Mike Meany, Brigadoo, Jack Leshner, Isaac Blebens, and Robert Lobiondo. Look how many people got it. I'm telling you, you people out there, you're really smart, really smart indeed. You don't need me to tell you that either. But anyway, my hat is off to you because I thought that one was murder. This week's question. For three separate musicals set in three different countries, 
he provided English lyrics the characters sang with pronounced Italian accents. Who's the lyricist? Who are the characters? What are the countries? And in what musicals do these characters appear? Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, Peter Pan Goes Wrong got me thinking about a Peter Pan that went really right, uh, the original <laughs> uh, musical with uh, music by Moose Charlop and lyrics by Carolyn Lee, but also uh, other songs by Betty Comden, Adolph Green, and Julie Stein. Uh, and that show, um, the, it opened on Broadway in October 1954, and the original uh, run went to February 26, 1955. But that was far from that, <laughs> uh, because then there were, I think, three or four live television productions uh, in black and white. And they really were live. Um, they were preserved on black and white kinescope. And you can now uh, access them in that form if you like. But uh, for years, they they were not viewable again. And then uh, so this they kept redoing the show <laughs> um, with the sets and uh, the cast, uh, Mary Martin and Cyril Richard are in all of them. Uh, and some of the other car- cast uh, continued also. And then finally uh, they videotaped it in color in 1960. Uh, and that, that one wasn't not live. It, it was videotaped, uh, but it's, it still looked the same and still had the, the, uh, the appearance and the, the sound of a, of a live performance, though without an audience. Uh, and that became a, a television staple for years. I knew, I know I grew up on it um, and millions of other people did. Cause again, this is back in the day when there were three networks <laughs> and maybe two or three local channels. And that was it. So when something like that was on TV, millions of people watched it. And a very, a very canny um, move on the part of whoever it was who said, you know, why don't we do this for TV instead of making a movie of it? Uh, so that worked out really well for them. Um, uh, our opener music is the overture from from Peter Pan. And for the closer, I, I picked that beautiful song, certainly one of my favorites. Uh, and depending on where you look, the, the title is either just Neverland or Never Neverland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either way, um, sung uh, pretty much to perfection by Mary Martin, who became iconic in the role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You'll have a treasure if you stay there. More precious far than gold For once you have found your way there You can never, never grow old And that's my home where dreams are born And time is never planned Just think of lovely things 
and your heart will fly on wings forever.